This episode is again sponsored by StoreSmart, an American manufacturer of products to support your lean journey, including huddles and visual display boards. They sell A3 document holders, status magnets, and other products for 5S, Kanban, and more. Visit their website at www.storesmart.com slash leanblog. Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 255 of the podcast for June 29th, 2016. My guest today is Mark Deluzio. He is author of the recently released book titled Turn Waste into Wealth, How to Find Cash in Every Corner of the Company. Now, it's Mark's first book, but he's been well-known in the lean community for a long time. Mark started learning and practicing lean in 1988 when he worked for Jake Brake, a Danaher company, and Danaher has long been considered a great lean company. As his bio says, after studying TPS under Taiichi Ono's influential autonomous study group, he was instrumental in developing Jake Brake's first zero defect line for Toyota's Hino Motors. He has spent considerable time in Japan implementing TPS at various world-class companies and has had a successful career in finance. In 2007, Mark was inducted into the Shingo Academy for his contribution to the Lean Movement, and he is also the CEO of the consulting firm Lean Horizons. So if you want to find a link uh, to Mark's bio, his website, information about the book, you can go to leanblog.org slash 255. Mark, hi. Thanks for being a guest on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Mark. Can you start off by introducing yourself to the audience, um, you know, talk about your career and, and how you first got introduced to Lean or the Toyota production system? Well, that's going back a long time ago. I don't think I can, re I don't think I can remember that far back. <laughs> but, uh, well, actually, I, my Lean career started in 1988. Uh, George Conan and Art Byrne hired me at a company called Jake Break, which was a part of a company called Danaher. And uh, we started, uh, Jake Break was in dire straits. Uh, I started as a finance guy there. And they specifically wanted me to come in and uh, do this thing called lean accounting, which I had no idea what it was at the time. But they uh, provided all the resources. I went to uh, on one of the first study missions to Japan to study the Toyota production system. I ended up doing that over my career six times mm. and was mentored by Nikao and Iwata from Shingejitsu. Spent a lot of time with those guys and had uh, started to learn that the accounting systems that we uh, traditionally use and what they taught you in college were really driving dysfunctional behaviors when it came to lean, you know, things like absorption costing and purchase price variance and things like that. So, so I was really involved with driving that part of the business, but in the meantime, got involved in a lot of Kaizen activity and I really got the bug and really loved it. So uh, I was promoted to CFO put the first lean accounting system in in 1989. And uh, shortly after that, I said, geez, you know, finance is great. And uh, I did really well in this career, had my CMA and my degrees and all that. But I really want to get involved in operations. And I really want to get involved in this thing that w wasn't called lean back then. Right. But, uh, but uh, anyway, got involved in that and became general manager of the Asian business for Jake Break. 
and had a, com- a customer called Hino Motors, mm-hmm. which was owned by Toyota. And uh, not only learned from Shinkajitsu, but learned from Hino Motors as well, which was a real advantage for me. We did the first 3P implementation, I believe, in the country. There may have been one before that, but I think we were the, one of the first ones. Mm-hmm. And uh, ended up getting my MBA in operations management, got my CPIM, which back then uh, Apex was just teaching everybody GIT was <laughs> throw all your inventory back to the supplier. That's <laughs> right. what GIT was all about way back then. And uh, they've evolved since then. And then what happened in, uh, shortly after that, George Sherman, uh, our new CEO, came on board and asked me to work for him directly to do what we did at Jake Break because we made a lot of great improvements in the first couple of years. He, asked me to, he basically said, hey, I want to do what you guys did at Jake Break corporate-wide. And that really gave birth to, well, at the time we called it the Danaher Production System, and shortly after that I changed it to what's called the Danaher business system, mm-hmm. because it was really more of an enterprise approach. Mark, uh, it wasn't. It wasn't just wasn't just a production system, if you will, but it was really more of an enterprise business system. So uh, I worked nine years for George Sherman in the Danaher business system office, evolving that process over the course of time. Yeah, and I'd like to talk more about Danaher, but maybe backing up a little bit. You know, some of our listeners might not really know about Shingajitsu, even though I mean they were. Uh, amongst the first to bring um, lean to the U.S., like you said before, the term lean had really been coined. Doing you know kaizen blitz and kaizen events. Can you talk a little bit about um, you know the role they've played in bringing lean to the U.S. and your involvement with them? Yeah, exactly. Well, what happened was George Sherman and I mean I'm sorry, uh, George Conesaker and Bob Petland went to a seminar at the. Uh, Harford, uh, uh, what was it called back then? It was now it's now the uh, Ren- Ren- uh, Rensselaer uh, University, and heard this talk by Iwata, and George convinced them to come back to Jake Break that night and do a kaizen. Hmm. They, they were actually moving machines around at twelve midnight, <laughs> and uh, the first kaizen in the U.S. was really performed right here in Bloomfield, Connecticut, at Jake Break. And uh, what happened was they convinced him them to to come to Jake Break. They didn't want to at first because we were so awful. And uh, they basically said, you guys are a bunch of concrete heads and you're never going to learn. And uh, But we ended up bringing Shinkajitsu back and, and had a very good relationship with them. And I brought them through all the Danaher companies as well uh, when I got into the DBS office. And... Um, these guys were the original guys that we worked with, the original five guys, were the disciples of Tayashi Ono, mm-hmm. who basically uh, were the creators of the Detroit production system. So we learned from the source. Yeah, It's interesting today when a lot of consultants say, oh, no, that's not how you do standard work. And well, we kind of learned from the guys that wrote it, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, you know, you may have a different way of doing it, but uh, this is how we were taught, you know. So... So anyway, uh, they provided a tremendous amount of uh, uh, benefit and really formed the, the foundation of what later became the Danaher business system. Yeah, so you know, Danaher is a really fascinating story. Um, you know, one of the major business magazines a few years ago did a piece about you know Danaher being the best company nobody's really ever heard of. Um, can you tell a little bit of the story about the Danaher business system? Um, you know, their their model for um, you know using Lean for business success. Well, 
one of the most important things, Mark, to think about when you're doing lean is to think about how your resources and your efforts are going to be aligned to what we call breakthrough objectives. And breakthrough objectives come resonate out of your strategy. And what you're really looking to do is to drive improvements in safety, quality, delivery, cost, and growth, and drive performance that gets baked into eventually daily management systems because you're focusing in on process. Right. And when you focus in on process, it just becomes a way of doing business, but at a very high level. So, so the real game with what we learned at Danaher was not only what to focus on, but what not to focus on. That was a real key. And that's what we learned out of the strategy deployment process. And a lot of people confuse that process with, with daily management and trying to do bunts and singles where strategy deployment is really home runs and grand slams. And those are the things that you're really trying to do. For. But you want to institutionalize those changes so that that's the, the, the level you perform at at a consistent basis. One of the things that Danaher got rewarded for from a multiple perspective is that analysts would say they're predictable, they're uh, they're reliable and uh, they're consistent and they, and they always hit their numbers. And a lot of that, I believe, ties back to the foundation of the strategy deployment process. Larry Culp, the former CEO, Tom Joyce is now the CEO of Danaher, used to say that strategy deployment was really the mortar uh, between the bricks and, and that held everything together. And, uh, the, and that, that, that was a real key breakthrough that we put into the Danaher business system that really set the table for all the other things we did in lean. Yeah. So. Well, and, and that's, I think, a really important point, tying things to objectives, goals, and strategy. I, I'm sure you've seen this. Um, you, you touch on this in the book that lean is not just a bunch of tools. And, and I think we've all seen organizations get off track where they, they learn lean tools and they say, we're going to go implement lean tools. And then they learn that maybe they, they, they just have some random improvement. It's not really having an impact. People get discouraged with lean. You know, I think we, we, we need to avoid that, especially in healthcare, considering how high the stakes are. I mean, what can you kind of make, uh, what, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, well, you know, it's a really good point, Mark, because, you know, you think about, I just built a new house a couple of years ago and this house, the quality of this house is so much better than one I came from. Uh, but both houses were built with the same tools. So interesting, what's really the difference? The difference is people. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, especially engineers today, think that lean is more of a, a formula, uh, an algorithm. Uh, you get the right tools in place and everything's gonna be fine, but you gotta, you gotta implement those tools around people and with people. So. So, you know, my builder, I would say to my builder, you know, George, geez, you know, that's fine. Leave it alone. He'd say, Mark, it's not good enough for me. I'm going to fix it, even though I told him it was okay. That's the attitude towards quality, the attitude towards excellence that made this house so, so much of a better house than the one I came from. So that's really what this is all about at the end of the day. It's about people and driving it from that respect. You know, when you talk about people in, in the book, um you know, there's a lot of, you know, it's real, a lot of digestible short chapters and, and key points in here. Um, one thing that stood out to me, you talk about lean is adopted at the, at the top, 
but driven by the bottom. So when we talk about people and, and people at different levels of the organization, what, what do you mean by that statement? Well, there are different roles for different layers in the organization. And, you know, one of the things we, we, can, we focus on is this whole concept called muda, which is Japanese for waste. And then you get your seven traditional wastes. And of course, everybody has that eighth waste of uh, unused creativity as the eighth waste. But there are two other forms of waste, mirror and mirroring, you know, unreasonableness and unevenness right. that are typically caused by policy and they're caused by leadership. So let me give you an example. I have a client who has a sales department that puts in what they call the President's Club. And the President's Club drives hockey stick type demand for and they give you know quarter end discounts to their customers the customers get trained these policies drive quarter end demand for their product however the plants are trying to do level loading Mm -hmm. consistent with lean thinking so there's two things that are going on now if the ceo doesn't understand those behaviors in the in the dysfunctionality that is created they're never going to optimize themselves as a true lean enterprise. So what ends up happening, Mark, is the first couple of years, everybody focuses in on tools. And that's fine. And you don't really need a lot of leadership involvement at the beginning because there's so much low-hanging fruit. Everybody's really euphoric about the, the improvements that get made. But then they hit a wall. And, I, and I'm starting to build my business around companies who what I call flatlined, which I think is going to be the name of my next book. Mm-hmm. And why do companies flatline? And many times it's because companies are trying to opt, they don't understand mirror and mirror, and they're trying to optimize functions as opposed to optimizing the enterprise. And so, uh, and, and, and it all starts with leadership. At the end of the day, leadership isn't engaged. Uh, they say they're committed. Those are words. I like to see leadership involved. Mm-hmm. Leadership has to be involved, physically involved, learning, educating, participating in Kaizen's, participating in uh, report outs, uh, asking, learning how to ask the right questions. And uh, so you got to gravitate from the tools perspective to a more system-wide approach. You know, the, the whole movement from MRP to true single point scheduling and pull systems takes, you have to harness the energy of the whole organization to be able to do that. You can't just do it in a simple Kaizen when you put in a cell and it's constrained and it's only a few people involved. This is an enterprise-wide approach. And if you don't have the understanding of the CFO, the CEO, the COO, uh, it's never going to happen. And that's why a lot of companies end up flatlining Mm -hmm. over time because they never are able to break through that barrier. And it all has to do, at the end of the day, with leadership. So maybe you know, let's talk about that a little bit more because um, I think there's a fairly common problem in healthcare where executives will say they support lean, but they're not involved. Um, the way you were describing, you know, they I think a lot of times executives think they can somehow delegate the lean transformation. So, well, I've hired a director of lean. Um, what what would you say to executives that are trying to go down that path? What else would you say to them? Well, you can't delegate away your responsibilities. You know, at the end of the day, the leader, leadership has a specific role to play. And to say, Charlie's my lean guy, he's going to implement lean, right there you know the, guy, the leader doesn't get it. Mm-hmm. 
and and so you can't you can't really you can't really do that. We need leadership to break down the barriers to be able to do the system-wide things that have to happen in the organization. You know, when it comes to healthcare, uh, you know, I, I, I think I think there's uh, some interesting dynamics that go on in that business. But one of the things and one of the questions I think you want to ask is, is you know, what, what's some advice for hospitals and healthcare? The first thing I think they have to do is stop thinking that they're so unique that these that these approaches won't won't apply. Let's argue, let's agree that they're different. Okay, right. but every company is different. Every company has a different culture. I'm working with a university right now, and they think they're different, and they are different. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean this doesn't work. Okay, so uh, I think the other thing is in healthcare, and you uh, you probably seen this more than I have. This whole idea of craftsmanship, and every doctor and every pr practitioner has their own unique artistic way of doing something has to be thought through from the respect that, you know, that leads to non-standardization and quality problems and in healthcare quality problems lead to death. So, so I think we got to start thinking about the paradox of the Toyota production system where the more standardization that you have, the more flexibility you have in your organization. And that's kind of counterintuitive, but that's exactly what I think healthcare needs is more standardization and, and getting away from Dr. A does it this way and Dr. B likes the operating room set up this way. There is one best way, mm -hmm. and, and we all have to agree what that one best way is. Yeah. And, and and I think there's there, there's a it's interesting in healthcare there's there's a balance to be found because you know if you have this discussion and, and it's more effective when it's doctors or surgeons leading the discussion to say you know what are the evidence based best practices uh, they'll use that term evidence based in healthcare so looking at well you know what are the outcomes and if a doctor says well I I like to do it this way well is that is that a compelling reason uh, or you know the, and we can think about the patient and outcomes and i think sometimes we have to challenge people there there's you know i think there's times where surgeon a was trained in method a and and surgeon b was trained in in method b and and relearning that other method could be really time consuming and, and might not have a big impact on outcomes but um yeah, I mean, there, there's there's huge opportunities, though. There, there's certainly many, many cases where waste and uh, defects and harm uh, is caused by lack of standardization or people just not following what they've already defined to be the standard process. Yeah, not adhering to standards at all is another another uh, defect mode. You know, and, I, and I'm glad to see that the hospitals are embracing triple aim, you know, which basically for people who don't know is, you know, patient experience, population health, and uh, cost of health care. But I'm not convinced yet that health facilities know how to deploy specific objectives mm -hmm. and use lean to achieve those objectives around those three areas. So uh, I think we're making some progress, but from personal experience, I can tell you, triple aim is not happening. <laughs> so, but maybe that's just my unique yeah, personal well, experience. I think yeah. it's getting better. I think it's getting better. It's getting better. Yep. But, but you're right. It, it's not enough to just have goals, and uh, you know, we there, there's got to be 
that connection of uh, action and strategies to actually try to close the gaps in those goals. And you know, some some folks in the IHI and, and, and Don Burwick are now talking about the quadruple aim, this idea of creating better workplaces, more engaging workplaces, which you know to me um, ties back to the idea of respect for people. Um, you, you touch on this in the book. Um, you know, the, 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 I, to me, I think you know part of the idea is if you you know create a better workplace, you engage people, you get them participating. That helps accomplish the original parts of the triple aim. Curious what your thoughts are on on any of that or the idea in general of respect for people. Well, you know, I think uh, first of all, I don't think respect for people needs to be a big mystery. Mm -hmm. I think we all know when we're respected by other people and when we're not. And I think we also know when we disrespect people ourselves and when we don't. But, so I don't think it's a big mystery. I think there's a lot of writing about it and there's a lot of university professors writing about it and all that. But, you know, I think I think it's pretty basic when you come right down to it. Uh, I think creating a blameless environment, you know, focusing in on the process as, a fo as, as opposed to who did it, but what went wrong with this process uh, I was at a client and then we were going through a strategy deployment review and they showed a Pareto chart of uh, manufacturing errors and their biggest bar on the Pareto chart was operator error. Mm -hmm. And I said, I stopped them and I said, time out. I said, that is not a cause. Operator error. I said, I want you to change that to management error because you did not provide a process to for that employee to be successful. So you got to think about it from not blaming the operators, but blaming management to say, we didn't ensure that we had the right processes in place. You know, respect for people. I had a, I had a client, Mark, where 80 people waited 20 minutes for the CEO to come in and give a kickoff speech. He was late. He had 80 people, high-paid people, by the way. I won't mention the company, but high-paid people and that was just disrespectful. And then mm -hmm. he stood up there and said, I'm really supporting you guys. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for great results at the end of the week. And when I come back on Friday, I can't wait to see what you've done. Mm -hmm. So he came back on Friday and guess what? He was 20 minutes late again. Mm -hmm. And that, and people had to catch flights. They were, you right. know, they were late and all the, the whole thing. So, so, and he came back and, you know, I want to see what you guys have done. During the week, nothing. Never showed up to report out. Never got involved. You know, so that's just disrespectful. Uh, you know, when you talk about when you talk about naysayers, Mark, and I know that was one of your thoughts on on this. You know, I've seen many times, and I'm sure you have too, where a naysayer is uh, uh, basically uh, turns around, does a 180, and and is the biggest supporter. Right, going right. forward. I've seen that happen time and time again. I've also seen situations where naysayers dug their heels in and didn't move. And so uh, those 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 particular instances are tough. Uh, my, my approach there is, hey, look, provide the resources, provide the training, uh, provide the support. But, you know, a lot of people get rewarded by putting out fires all their career. They're the firefighter. And now Lean is saying, we're not going to reward firefighters. We're going to reward people who put processes in. We're going to reward the Smokey the Bears, okay, <laughs> that prevent right. forest fires. And that's what we're going to reward. And sometimes it doesn't work for them. 
and sometimes and they fight you and and all that so over a period of time and this ties back into respect for people right. over a period of time if those naysayers don't change you they've got to exit the organization i hate to say it uh they've got to exit the organization also they're they're a cancer and they'll bring you down you'll spend more time managing the 10 percent naysayers than you will the 90 percent that are on board and if you allow a naysayer as a leader to uh, to exist and thrive in an organization, that is disrespectful for the 90% who are trying to do the right thing. So, so that, that's been my experience with naysayers, and it ties back into the whole respect for people concept. Yeah. Is it, yeah, because you're right. I mean, we need to have respect for the, the customers or patients, respect for those who are trying to do things a new way. I mean, where, where's the, the, I imagine there's some judgment involved of, how long do you try to bring somebody along versus when do you reach a conclusion that they need to move on? You know, it's different, Mark, for every individual because, uh -huh. you know, if you start seeing people make progress, uh, you know, and, and, and you really got to look at not what they say, but what they do. And uh, there comes a time where you just know Charlie's not going to change or you start seeing progress with Mary and Mary's starting to get it, you know, and she starts having some success. So you can see that you could work with her and she'll, she'll be on the road to, uh, to uh, stardom, if you will. And, but, you know, I think it's more of an intuitive feel as to, and a judgment as to, there's no, there's no formula that says six months, three months, you know, uh, that, that's how I look at it. Yeah. I'd like to go back. Um, to what you were talking about around uh, a blameless environment um, in healthcare, you know, there, there's a phrase that gets used that sort of describes the old culture of naming, blaming, and shaming, and you know that's not an approach that leads to quality improvement. That that's an approach that leads people to to hide problems instead of admitting um, that we have problems. And you know, I think that, that that's just that's a huge mindset change. Uh, it's it's tough for leaders. Um, I think it's still pretty rare in healthcare for people to really and to really embrace that idea. I heard a, a former Toyota guy say a couple of weeks ago at a conference, almost exactly what you said, that it's management's responsibility to provide people with a system and processes that can be successful. Where I think the norm in healthcare far too often is. I hate to say it, abdicating that responsibility and then just blaming and punishing people when they inevitably make an error. Um, really, it's really tough to change. But I was wondering well, if you could. You know, it's, it's interesting because uh, <clears throat> a lot of companies, uh, big companies in particular, they have this whole top rating approach, okay, where they want A players. And Toyota has a little bit different view of that. They basically say that, you know, Toyota gets brilliant results from ordinary people working in brilliant processes, okay? And and so when you look at that, you say, geez, you know, not everybody needs to be an A player. As a matter of fact, I don't think you want everybody to be an A player. So the whole top grading concept, I know there's a book written and Jack Welch was a big fan of it uh, way back when. It, I, I, I disagree with because I don't think you need all A players. As a matter of fact, I have a client right now who has all A players, and they're a bunch of individual contributors, there's no teamwork, and they spend most of the time managing their careers and managing their boss than managing the processes that they're in charge of. So, uh, so you, really gotta, you really gotta look at this and say, you know, how do we create brilliant processes 
that are going to provide brilliant results that are that that are simple enough that can be run by ordinary people. And by the way, those ordinary people are your people who who are going to help you create those processes. You got to get their involvement, and get their ideas because they know the job better than anybody. So, so you know, when you look at when you look at this uh, this whole blameless environment uh, perspective is is uh, is important, but it's so easy to blame an individual. Now, if you've got a good process and somebody's not following standard procedure, that's a disciplinary issue. But I think those are going to be far and few if you have good processes that will prevent people from making mistakes. I remember going to Hino Motors and I went to their connecting rod cell and I spent a whole day there with my engineers. And uh, I said to the engineer who was showing us, uh, showing us around, I said to him, where do you put your scrap? And he said, he said to me, Delusio son, we don't make scrap in this cell. Okay. <laughs> so, and it was like, whoa, okay. Uh, you know, and, and every machine Mark was pokey oaked and judoka yes. and every, you know, you name it. I mean, you, you just, you almost had to want to sabotage it to make a mistake. Uh -huh. Well, you're, you're, Bringing me back to my roots, 20 years ago, I was an industrial engineer supporting a connecting rod machining cell at General Motors, and they made lots of scrap. And management could have yelled. Well, I mean, their approach would have been, and this is pre any sort of lean culture, they would just yell and scream and blame the employees. And if you just looked at the equipment and uh, how it had been run to death over time, I think that's you know, back to your point about overburden. And that, that was a management policy to treat the equipment that way. Uh, it wasn't the workers' fault, but yet, you know, they they would get blamed sort of, unfortunately, the same way people get blamed in healthcare. It's- uh, You know, you remind, me of a, you remind me of a funny story. Uh, you know, this, this cell that I'm talking about over in Japan, uh, the, the youngest piece of equipment was 10 years old. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and everybody, all the engineers like to think about new fancy equipment with all the bells and whistles and everything else. And they like to buy a solution as opposed to invent a solution. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget the time, this is a little bit off subject, but I'll never forget the time when I was with Mr. Nakao from Shingajitsu and an engineer came up to him and said, Nakao-san, we need a uh, new machine. And Nakao said, why do you need a new machine? And the engineer said, because it's old. <laughs> and Nakao said, how old is it? And he said, it's 15 years old. And the cow shook his head and he says, he looked at the engineer and says, how old are you? <laughs> and, he, and the engineer said, I'm 32. He goes, looks like we need a new engineer as well. <laughs> so just because it's old doesn't mean it's, uh, yeah. yeah, you know. Yeah, but, you know, that equipment's managed differently and, and taken care of and, exactly. and not, that's not run to death. Yeah, these are these are management issues. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, so, I mean, one, one of my lessons learned from General Motors is that, you know, when we did get a new plant manager who had been one of the original GM people at NUMI, you know, learning from Toyota in California, you know, he came in and set a totally different tone. I mean, I, I saw the impact that that one leader could have, it was, you know, to, to help change the culture, to improve the, the performance of the 800 people. Uh, who worked there, um, you know, that, that, that role of, of leadership um, can't be understated. Um, you know, lean isn't just about training and fixing the employees, right? 
Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And again, it's it's all about the process, you know, and really focusing the problem solving on the process. When you have a problem, what went wrong with the process? Now, again, you could have somebody that had a standard that that didn't follow the standard, but then you got to ask yourself, why didn't they follow the standard? Okay, mm-hmm. because many times when an employee doesn't follow a standard. There's a darn good reason why. Exactly. Okay. And you really have to get under the covers instead of just disciplining the employee and saying, well, why don't you follow the standard? You really have to say, why didn't he follow the standard? You have to ask yourself that question. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because, because there's usually something wrong with the process that needs to be improved that the employee is trying to do a workaround or something. Okay. Or doesn't yeah. maybe see the value in the process step or whatever. So, so, you know, every problem leads to the next level of improvement. And if you just chalk it up that the employee did the wrong thing, and that could be the case, don't get me wrong, but, you know, many times there's more re- a deeper meaning behind why the employee didn't follow the process. Yeah, and, and I think that's a key element of respect for people is understanding exactly uh, if, if there's a legitimate barrier to doing things the right thing, you need to eliminate those barriers and not just blame the employee. Exactly. Um, one, one other element of leadership I was hoping we touched on, because you, you make this point very well in the book. I think this is a really important point for healthcare leaders, because the norm in healthcare has been to focus on cost cutting, and often that means layoffs. Um, can you help make the case you know, for why lean uh, can't be, shouldn't be used to drive layoffs? Well, you know, I've got a chapter in the book that says lean does not equal less employees are needed, L-E-A-N, right? And, you know, here it's very simple. It's very simple. I mean, you're asking employees to get involved in improvements and improving their own job, their own work. They're your best consultants at the end of the day. And uh, they make improvements. They make efficiency gains, productivity gains, and all that. And instead of 15 people, now you only need seven. So what happens to the other eight? Oh, we don't need you anymore. You go to the next group and say, okay, now we want your input. Are you going to get it? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. Okay, they're going to sabotage you. They're going to work behind the scenes. They're going to work harder on making things break. Machines are all of a sudden are going to start breaking down, uh, and you won't know why. And uh, you'll create a whole level of distrust, and the whole lean, continuous improvement uh, approach and culture that you're trying to create is going to be replaced by a lot of defensiveness mm-hmm. and a lot of looking over your shoulder and making sure there's uh, self-sustaining security for yourself. And the last thing people are going to want to do is create uh, improvements and suggestions to improve the work. Yeah. So, uh, so you know, it's just a, a counterintuitive to or counter to the whole philosophy that you want to develop in a lean culture. And uh, so people who use lean as a head cutting tool is uh, don't understand the, the fundamentals. See, the real responsibility, Mark, is for management to grow the business and consume those, those additional resources or put those resources to work in improving the business on Kaizen teams and things like that. But ultimately, you know, it, it kind of feeds into itself if you do it right because your quality is going to get better, your lead time and delivery is going to get better, your costs are going to get better, and you should be able to use that as a competitive weapon in the marketplace to grow your business. Mm-hmm. 
So if you do that, then those excess resources are going to be employed in the growth of the business and you won't have to lay them off. So, you know, now I'm not saying that there's not economic turmoil out there where you're going to have to make some cost cutting moves. Okay. Uh, I think you got to reserve the right to do that. But you know, when the, when the, when the, uh, the 2008 recession happened, I, I, I think that, that, that happened, you know, unfortunately, but using lean as a means to reduce heads is totally wrong. And quite frankly, I refuse to work with companies who have that mentality. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good. And, and, you know, there's, there's a difference between, let's say if there's some huge structural shift where, you know, 50% of a company's demand has gone away forever versus we've improved productivity by 20% in an area. I mean, those, exactly. those are different circumstances. Exactly. Exactly. And, and it sounds like you would make the case that, you know, if demand, uh, instantaneously and permanently went away um, that maybe that was management's fault for not uh, anticipating that or not preventing that well you know um, I would I would again look at their marketing processes and try to understand how they didn't see that and how they uh, you know again I, I would I blame the marketeer uh, well, blame's not, not really the right word but. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I would, I would, I would say, you know, what was wrong with our forecasting process and our understanding of the marketplace, mm -hmm. where we didn't anticipate it. Uh, number one and two, uh, also reinvent ourselves for, for another sector in the business to be able to continue and employ people and you know do all the things we need to do as a business. Yeah, because I mean, health healthcare has. I think some risk if you know if you're running a hospital and your business model is based around performing surgery and uh, having patients in beds there's been such a push uh, in, in a lot of dimensions to keep people healthy to keep them out of the hospital and if we're if health care more broadly is really successful in those goals um, there, there's there's a real financial risk to hospitals um, interesting challenge yeah, it's an interesting challenge, but I think at the end of the day, uh, it's a noble goal. Um, you know, the 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 AAA and and population health and and things like that. And I think that's measurable, and I think that's actionable. I think what's happening in healthcare, though, as baby boomers like me uh, are getting older, the mass of people that are going to be coming through their doors is just going to increase. You know, so they've sure. got to become they've got to become more efficient, even if even if the ratios of disease is down, they're still going to probably see an increase in demand on, because of the pure population. And so, uh, so I, I think, I think that they've got to get ready for that surge. And, uh, I'm on the board of directors for a, uh, company called Hillenbrand, which one of our companies is Batesville Casket. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we track death rates and flu flu rates and flu seasons and things like that. It's kind of kind of morbid, but yeah, uh, yeah. but but you know, uh, right now the, the the market the market is such that cremations because of the economy, more people are doing cremations. The death rate is down, but that's going to change over the next fifteen twenty years as our baby boomers get older. So uh, so you know, I, I think that's something you got to look at. Yeah. Well, um, we've got to wrap up. 
uh, here in a couple of minutes. I, I, I wish I had left more time to delve into a topic. Maybe I, I can uh, at some point, maybe we can do, we could do a whole 30 minute podcast on this topic. You have a chapter titled Lean Trump's Six Sigma and you, you posted a question on LinkedIn. I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes about Lean Sigma and, and why that causes a lot of confusion. What, what's kind of a quick synopsis of what you posted there on LinkedIn? Well, really, really quick, Mark, you know, problem solving is a subset of lean, right? And Six Sigma is a statistical problem solving methodology that has a bunch of tools in it, right? And some of them cross over. Uh, I think it's foolhardy for companies, and a lot of companies have done this, to create a culture and a management philosophy around a tool. And, and that's what Six Sigma is, where lean is more of a philosophy and a methodology and more suitable to developing a culture. It's a way of thinking mm -hmm. as opposed to a set of statistical tools to build a culture around. Uh, one of the things I think that you have a problem with with Six Sigma is it, 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 it's not what, you know, I get back to Toyota gets brilliant results with ordinary people running brilliant processes. Not everybody is sophisticated enough and you need an incredible amount of training to be effective with Six Sigma. So Lean is a lot more intuitive, a lot more user-friendly for anybody to get involved from day one. So you almost create an elite class of people in your company that are these black belts and master black belts and green belts and purple belts and, you know, chartreuse belts, you know, yeah. and, 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 and so what ends up happening is you got this elite people that are working on improvements but you're not really involved in the rest of the organization. So now I'm not saying Six Sigma is a bad thing. I'm no. Six Sigma certified myself. Mm -hmm. but, but what I am saying is I've never seen a company rise to excellence, uh, to world-class excellence, including GE, okay, who use Six Sigma as their approach for continuous improvement. And I've, I've never seen it yet. And maybe I've, maybe there's some out there that have, mm -hmm. but but uh, you really got to harness the energy of the people, and I don't think Six Sigma is the right tool to do that. Now, I, I think I think 85, 90 percent of your problems could be solved with very basic problem-solving tools, and I think the more sophisticated problems that require design of experiments or whatever could be solved using Six Sigma tools. But I wouldn't convert the whole company's culture around Six Sigma. Uh, just for that 10% of those problems. Yeah. So, so I think it, I think I think problem solving. I don't think it has to be that hard to yeah. be happy. So, yeah. well, well, maybe we'll we'll generate some comments from the listeners uh, about that, um, and uh, maybe yeah, that's that's a rich topic. Maybe we can delve into some other time. But yeah, um, I, to to wrap up here, um, you know, our guest again has been Mark Deluzio. His new book is titled "Turn Waste into Wealth: How to Find Cash in Every." corner of the company. I think it would be a great book to give to your executives as, a, as an intro uh, to the, the thinking and the philosophy. There's a lot of great lessons uh, from Mark in the book. So thank you for that. Um, wh where can people find you online, um, websites for the book, yourself? What, what? Yeah, there are two websites. Uh, my my Lean, uh, Lean Horizons uh, consulting company, it's www.leanhorizons.com. And then uh, my own personal website is uh, www.markdeluzio.com. And you can, you can learn about the book in there. You can order it on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and places like that. Uh, the, book, the book basically, Mark, real quick, is 
is designed for really two audiences. One, the people that are, are new to this whole thing. Mm -hmm. And also, it's got some lessons learned that's, like I say, the mortar between the bricks uh, that talk about some of the lessons that we learned. So so the, the person who's a little bit more sophisticated can, can learn something from it as well. It's a book of some 48, 50 chapters. I forget how many. Mm -hmm. uh, they're all two or three pages a piece. And yeah. it's a quick read. It's designed to be a lean book because uh, I respect the CEO's time, and I know most business books don't get read. So, yeah, it's, so this, one, this yeah. one you can read on an hour and a half uh, airplane flight. Yeah, it's it's very digestible, and I think if some people have maybe you know uh, gotten down the lean path without having learned some of these lessons, this will maybe course correct some folks that have um, been struggling because they may be headed in the wrong direction. So thank you for the bookmark, and, and thank you for being a guest today. Okay, Mark, look forward to future uh, conversations. Okay, well, great. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.